We're starting, we're in the midst of a series out of 1 Corinthians called Back to Life, where we're, uh, we're entering into the world imagined by, by Paul about the kingdom of God and what it means for the church to really be the church and to be a church of resurrection and new life uh, in the world. Uh, Andy Savage, a picture of his mug. He's a pastor earlier this year who admitted publicly to his church in Memphis about sexually abusing a girl named Jules when he was a youth pastor in a Houston area church uh, many years ago, back in 1998. Uh, he told this Memphis megachurch that he had dealt with it properly, that he had gone through the right process, that he had resigned from that church and the Memphis church gave him a standing ovation. And yet, in the days that followed, Jules, the offended, the abused, cried foul. Uh, she was told, she said, to be quiet. No authorities were notified. Savage never addressed her personally before he made this public address. Larry Cotton was the executive pastor of that same church in the Houston area. Uh, back in the day with Savage, and he was Jules's primary point of contact after the incident. And he resigned from the church he was working with in Austin many years later because of the way he mishandled it. In a statement, he said, I understand that I have failed to report the sexual abuse. I wish I had reported to the proper authorities. The church in Houston um, really screwed up. Uh, they had bad process. They minimized Jules's experience. The abuse needed to be outed, and it wasn't. It was hushed. She was terribly traumatized. What happened to her was wrong, and it is right for Savage and for Cotton to face the consequences of their actions. And this story raises a really interesting deeper question. And that is, what is the relationship between the church and state? Between the church and the courts? The church and the governing authority of the land in which it finds itself? Larry Cotton thinks in retrospect he should have involved the proper authority. Well, the question is, what are the proper authorities? Part of the reason it's an interesting question is because of what Paul says in this text that we just read this morning from 1 Corinthians 6. And if you want to turn there in a paperback or in your, your uh, device, I encourage you to do that. I'm not going to read it again, but I'm going to allude to it quite a bit. Uh, the Christians in Corinth were apparently talking to each other. Uh, well, they were taking each other rather to court over some economic disputes. The language of the text in verses 7 and 8 is that uh, they were defrauding each other. And we don't really have any more detail about what's happening with that. Uh, Greco-Roman background studies teach us that it was common in Paul's day for the rich to take the poor uh, to court over disputes. And that the judges, who were typically wealthy themselves, would give favor to those who were wealthy and they would decide in their favor and against those who were in poverty. And get this, the rich were wealthy enough to hire professional orators to present their case persuasively to the judge. The poor did not have equal representation. They were not wealthy enough. And Paul is not having it, which is interesting because most of you are probably familiar with Romans 13, where Paul says to be subject to the governing authorities. And on the contrary, here he's saying that they should not be subject to the governing authorities. This is an outrage to Paul. Certainly the social injustice that was happening was part of his response. God sides with the poor. It's not right that the poor are suffering and being taken to court and unfairly uh, being treated by the judges for siding with the rich. But it's more than that. 
For Paul, the church is the sign and the witness of the coming kingdom. It is the picture of what the world looks like when Jesus is in charge. And yet here we have the church failing to be the church by outsourcing discernment and justice to the kingdom of this world. Paul draws on this common tradition in Judaism that that believers will actually get to help God judge the world in the final judgment. Uh, And the language of Paul used, we'll even get to judge the angels. And yet here you are outsourcing judgment to uh, to non-Christian judges who you never would trust in any other issues of morality or faith. And yet you're taking each other to court. Um, Since the people of God are filled with the the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of God, there's no reason they should be deferring to unrighteous judges who are bent toward corruption. So he concludes this reasoning by saying, you used to be unrighteous and corrupt yourselves, just like those judges you're seeking help from. Those kind of folks won't inherit the kingdom of God. You've been washed. You've been justified. You've been made holy by the Holy Spirit. So stop acting like fools. As Paul said a few weeks ago about 1 Corinthians 1, the Corinthians were living in this present age and not in the age to come that had arrived in Jesus Christ. They were, they were living as if the, the age to come had never arrived. By, by taking each other to court and depending on the discernment of the courts when they should have been depending on the spirit together. So I juxtaposed these two stories to create a little bit of tension for you. What tension do you feel? How does Paul's story speak to this sexual abuse scandal? And the deeper question, what is the relationship of the church of Christ Christ church with society's governing authority. What do you think? Please tell me. <laughs> just, the thing, just the thing that jumps out to me is there, is, there seems to be a little different language going on here. One is trying to say lawsuits. And, he, and of course, he not uses the phrase trivial. Um, this is criminal. Yeah. There's a difference between civil and criminal in our society, anyway. Okay. Uh, so, in Paul would say, you know, Obey the laws, as you mentioned in Romans, because they don't bear the sword. The authorities do not bear the sword in vain. That's for punishment for criminal mischief, criminal wrongdoing. This is a criminal act as well. Would Paul make that distinction? Um, would, Would Paul distinguish between mistreating the poor and um, abusing a vulnerable person? Are they aren't they both the same? For Paul. Yes, they are. But the vulnerable person in this situation is the one who's being taken to court. That's true. According to your, yeah, that's right. That's it's answer. a different dynamic. It's a very different dynamic. Yeah. That person's being abused still. And in this case, it's the abuser that's being That's right. Yeah, Terry. Well, I am obligated to report abuse. Yeah. I, I mean, in the position that I am, right. which probably all of us are, but in the position that I am in, if I see it, I have to report Yeah. Because you're a social worker, counselor, mm-hmm. um, caseworker. Yeah. You're a mandatory reporter. Yeah. You and I are both too. Yeah. Well, in some states we're not. Yeah. In some states we're not. In yeah. Texas we're not. Ted. So, uh, what, I, what I see here is that Paul is, first of all, saying that the responsibility of that discernment and judgment lies within the body of Christ. God's given us his spirit. He's given, we have his wisdom, and we should be able to see when wrongdoings are happening, when, when things are right, when things are wrong. Mm-hmm. So, what, the other thing that I see from Paul is the things that he say, says are bound to different contexts. You know, you just have to look at what he's talking about. One of the things that I see here is, is the principle of we need to make sure that we are working towards God's justice. I think that's constant. I think the means by which you accomplish that changes. So, if, if there is a petty argument within members of, of the church, then we're, we're supposed to be above that anyway. We need to handle it. Mm-hmm. But if there is, if, if some, something seriously wrong has happened, like, 
and reporting it and going through the, the criminal court system and going through the laws of the day, if it happens to be that the laws line up with what we know to be wrong, then we go to the system. Hmm. And that we use that to to make sure that that justice happens. The other question that I that I that I have from this is if you say, Okay, we're not going to take this to the court, we're going to handle it ourselves, who are you protecting by doing that? Yeah. Yeah. Are you protecting the abuser? Are you protecting the powerful person? Yeah. If we're going to take this to the courts and let them settle it, who are you protecting by doing that? Right. Which is which is typically what happens when it's not taken beyond the congregation. Yeah. It results in protecting folks in power. That's why big corporations want you to sign arbitration clauses now. Yeah. If you want to use our services, you have to sign this thing so you can't take us to court. Yeah. Because we want to, you know. Yeah. Let's get somebody else's thought. Yeah. Anybody else? I think one of the biggest points was that by doing all these court cases, the, the world or the non-church is going to see you guys as, as not being able to have your business or being the same as they are or worse than they are. Um, I see that with the Catholic Church and with their own church and sexual abuse scandals, that that's destroyed the credibility of the church yeah. in the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, and whatever... <laughs> Whatever it can be done to let, because they didn't handle it the right way, because they didn't admit their problems, it's just had so much worse effect than Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you're dead on. I think a big a big reason for the loss of credibility is the sense of secrecy, um, and that uh, abuse and wrongdoing has been willfully hidden. Um, people have intentionally been protected. I don't disagree with any of that. What what I want to poke at a little bit is that when it comes to bringing it out in the open, when it comes to dealing with it head on, a lot of our imagination is formed by a logic that's not the kingdom of God. It is the criminal court systems of our world. I just I, I just want to poke at that a little bit. Um, and observe that. There's a deeper logic at play um, in our responses. And I think Paul, in this story, pokes at that a little bit. Um, I want to highlight three noteworthy ways that the church has answered this question historically about church and state. Um, And I'll describe each in relation to a prominent person who espoused it. uh, And white dude alert, I realized making these slides that these are all white dudes. I'm sorry about that. Uh, hashtag patriarchy. And it, it is it's unfortunate that uh, that history is often it's written by those in power. And so it tells a story about those in power. Right. Uh, so that said, I move forward with grave fear and trembling. The first one is Constantine. See, he's turquoise. Yeah. I looked him up. He's actually Balkan, Eastern European, which I think makes him white, um, probably. Depending on which area you live in. Yeah, that's right. Depending on, yeah. If things didn't get racialized, that's a whole other, man, we could really get into that. Yeah. Um, right. That's right. That's right. Um, so, Emperor Constantine. Uh, he's in Rome in the, for the fourth century. He's the first guy to legalize Christianity and make it the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so, which means if you're a Roman citizen, you are a Christian um, or else. Uh, Christianity aligns with state power. This is uh, the marriage of church and state. This is church and state getting into bed with each other. A strength of this approach is that it gives Christianity tremendous cultural power. A weakness of this approach is that it gives Christianity tremendous <laughs> cultural power, particularly the coercive, violent kind. Christianity is easily assimilated into the kingdoms of this world in this approach and neutered of its voice. Hitler is a... Uh, a very low-hanging fruit of an example. Hitler's alignment of the German Nazi order with the German Christian church and its complicity in the subsequent murder of millions of Jews is a horrific example of this approach gone way, way wrong. 
uh, Christianity, uh, when Christianity aligns with coercive, uh, uh, dominating power, things do not go well historically. The second person to highlight is Luther. Less. Yeah. And I've got some I got some bullets um, underneath, John. There we go. So Luther, Lex Luther, no, Martin Luther um, is a 16th century German Catholic turned Protestant. He's the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. The reason that we talk about Catholic and Protestant, because this guy protested. He protested abuses he saw in the Catholic Church. Well, so part of the thinking he develops is this two kingdoms idea. Um, it's the idea that God rules the world in two ways. One is through his church, spiritually, and the other is through the state, politically, using violence and such. And a lot of this is informed of a, by a particular way of reading passages like Romans 13, which I alluded to. I'm not going to get into it. Um, deep today, but you can refer to it later. Um, Abraham Kuyper comes along. He's a Dutch philosopher. Uh, uh, he's, a, he's a politician. And he takes this two kingdoms thing and morphs it into what he calls the spheres of sovereignty. Where he identifies in create, the created order, God creates these spheres. And so you have the sphere of church in the sphere of government, in the sphere of arts, in the sphere of education. And each one of these spheres has its own sovereignty. It has its own power, and it's insulated from the sovereignty of the other sphere. So, the church doesn't tell the government what to do, and the government does not tell the church what to do. Instead, the church forms individuals to go out into all of these spheres, and to influence them for good, as best as they can. Um, so when you leave this church service in, in Kuiper and Luther's paradigm, you enter into a different or different other spheres. And you are playing according to their, their rules. Uh, you're playing according to their sovereignty. And God wants it that way. Um, a strength of this approach is that it separates church and state. Um, it avoids some of the abuses of power that occur when church and state are in bed together. A weakness is that it baptizes all of these spheres of government, all these spheres of, of the world. And it, it, uh, it says that God ordains them all. And so the state that dominates people with coercive force, that is ordained by God. God is complicit in that mode of power. Um, so and, and it baptizes, it makes holy, it sanctifies all of the different ways that power is practiced in the world. And thus, violence and coercion is uh, what God wants. The third guy is a guy, funny looking guy, <laughs> I like his glasses, uh, John Howard Yoder. He is, he is a, um, a more modern expression of Anabaptist uh, movements that go back as far as Luther in the 15th and 16th century. But I, I didn't have a, a great picture for them like I do for John Howard Yoder. He is a 20th century Mennonite theologian and ethicist. I also have to say his legacy is wrapped up in sexual scandal, too. So um, uh, all of us are broken. Luther, broken. You should read some of his memoirs and bibliography, you know, uh, uh, autobiography kind of stuff. Uh, Constantine, certainly broken. We're not dealing with anybody who's not. Uh, but isn't that ironic that uh, the guy whose perspective I like the most, <laughs> dadgummit. So he subscribes to this two ages idea. Um, the government is a part of the present evil age. And while the government is ordered by God... In the same way a librarian would order books on a shelf in the library, um, it is not ordained by God. It's ordered, but not ordained. In the sense that God would approve of war, or violence, or coercion that governments enforce to keep order. No more than a librarian would create or approve or disprove of the books that he or she puts on the shelf in the library and orders. 
So he's revising common interpretations of that Romans 13 text. God in the Old Testament, for instance, calls Assyria his servant. And Assyria brutalized and captured Israel and did all kinds of terrible um, for their own agenda. And God says that served my purposes. Somehow God is able to craftily use these wicked governments in the world for his purposes. But he also says in Isaiah, Assyria, you're going to be judged too. Because what you did was not right. I used it for my purposes, but you're wicked too. And I'm coming for you. It's not, I'm going to make it right. Um, So God allows these governments to persist because they preserve order for the most part. They prevent destruction, even though he doesn't approve of the evil ways that they do it. The church, on the other hand, is the community of the age to come. Uh, It is the place, the community in which Jesus is the king who reigns over all by virtue of his resurrection. And he creates a new politic, a new way of living in the church because he's Lord. And so in the church, in this the age that is to come, that's broken in the church is subject to Jesus first before it's subject to the earthly authorities that are around it. A strength of this approach is that it separates church and state, and it does so without God being the source or the author of all the coercive violence um, and evil measures of human authorities. A weakness is that it can turn turn escapist. Because if the church is this other age, this other order, you know, so Yoder, he's Mennonite, Amish folks are Mennonite. That's the kind of the, the extreme of this approach is let's get out of Dodge and have our own little kingdom over here where we do our own thing. And let's not be in the world or of the world. Let's just be over here. Right. It can turn to that. Um, and that's a challenge. It doesn't have to be that. But that is a weakness of this kind of mentality it can lead us down a road where we're like totally disengaged. I don't have anything to do with anything that's going on in me uh, around me in the world. All right. Let me invite you to reflect. Um, where do you see yourself in these frameworks? Where do you find the assumptions of these approaches in your own thinking, even about the sexual abuse scandal that we were talking about earlier? <laughs> Tell us who Willipscombe is and what he's all about. Because he's another white dude I didn't put up there. Uh, yeah. Much more yeah. That's interesting. You know, as I was reading and thinking about Romans 13, one of the things that Yoder says is that uh, we forget, you know, even though God, Paul says, well, God orders governments. Well, there's also these texts in like first John. Where John says the whole world is under the power of the evil one. And, and, and the, the temptation narrative in the Gospels where Satan says to Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Whoa, that's a different narrative, right? Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, but yeah, the, the idea that, okay, there's, there's the age to come. There's a community of that age. And there's, there's broken human earthly kingdoms. Um, that are different than that. Yeah. Other thoughts? Um, I go back to the uh, where Jesus, you know, when he talks about taxes, and he says, you know, well, he keeps saying even in mm-hmm. other passages that his kingdom is not of this world. And clearly he didn't pursue political power, he didn't utilize any of the structures. Um, and so, so I like that idea. But on the other hand, I think because church has become an institution, um, I think there's actually a lot less justice in the church now than there is in the secular world. Hmm. And, um, and I Explain think it's that, easier... Well, um, I mean, if you are wrong in the congregation, uh, how easy it is to find justice, for example. Like if somebody cheated you out of money. Hmm. Like the was situation in my family when my mom was cheated of money by a church member who had a much longer attendance mm-hmm. and they just said, well, we just don't believe it. Like, they didn't investigate. They didn't. And how many churches would actually go to a name to really look into right. what's going on? And yeah. my mom chose not to pursue it in court, but if she did, she mm-hmm. actually had very strong evidence sure. that 
And so I feel like maybe it's not with all churches, but with a lot of churches, it's actually much easier for the person who has been wrong, for the victim, to find justice yep. in the secular world. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And I don't know what to do with it. It shouldn't be this right. way, but unfortunately, that's been the reality. And that was not like that in the Roman world. Right. And that might not be like that, for example, in Russia, where you can find justice. Right. That's happening in the United States. That's yeah, a great point, Dasha. Social media is like, this dude's not going to get arrested, so we are going to crucify him socially publicly. If the law isn't going to take it, like we're going to make sure that we all share it, that everybody knows, and it's been, you know, just blasted through mm-hmm. social media. And it's like, I've vacillated between, well, that's what you get for using someone, and like, I don't really know that things that vigilantism taking the place of actual justice is yeah. what you just want to hear. Yeah. Which is, and it's interesting that the um, the church is in a better position in the Savage case mm-hmm. to really navigate it because the statute of limitations there's no, there's not a lot you could do legally. Yet. So, but so where is is there a possibility for justice outside of the, yeah outside of vigilantism or slackism or whatever you call it? He's never gonna have an industry job again. Like he's gonna have to figure out figure out the move like. He's paying the piper now. I mean, I can put it up for the rest of the time. For the rest of the time. Sure. And, like, part of me is like, well, that's what you get for being a scumbag. Yeah. Like, well, like, not really tough. Like, yeah. You know. But even that is more, um, it's more retributive than it is restorative in the sense that yeah. it's punitive. Like, we're going to damage you because you damaged this person. Um, and that, that is the logic of earthly authorities, not the logic of the gospel. The, yeah. the problem with the logic we're supposed to have in the church of being restorative is that's often used to tell people who have been abused, like, you need to acquiesce right. and submit and make right. Gosh, right? Yeah, you're right. right. You know, that's so why it's such a mess. Exactly. <laughs> so, that's, so going back to what I I thought I was hearing, maybe may, maybe seeing one corner of your cards while you were kind of setting this whole thing up with what's going on in First uh, Corinthians, but the idea that like the rich in the church and Corinthians are going to the rich people in the world and looking out for the rich in interests, right, against those that are poor. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like in this situation, the idea of like keeping it silent, keeping it in the church, it's it's church person in power and church person in power looking out for church people in power versus church person not in power, mm-hmm. right? Like, yep, that's right. You see what I mean? Yep. So like proper authority would not be that same thing. And, and that's right. Part of it too with the way in which our church is, particularly Protestant church, where and in so many of like the Church of Christ or whatever that you're, you're, you're on an autonomous thing, each, each church to itself, what power do we have to really like take the person who has been an abuser and like enforce, you know, them like moving to restore? Like if that's even a thing that, that could happen, right? Like yep. they can, if it's kept quiet and just kept in the church, they can just move on to another city and go to another church and then it comes up 15 years later and then what can the state do, right? So like, it's one of those things where whether or not I, I, I mean, my, my take like looking at your different approaches to like state and church I just kind of see the state as it's there I, I'm probably more along with God orders things um, and doesn't ordain things but we as people who have been brought into this new life that is in the body of Christ we can use we can leverage those things toward justice mm-hmm. right like that's so I, that's why I would say those things votes, uh, voting <laughs> court system whatever yeah. right like like there are ways in which we can use these things that can be neutral, that can lead to good ends, yeah. um, and use them in the right way to speak out the justice. Because Jesus still walked into the temple and flipped over tables, yeah. right? Like he still came in and disrupted the orders and the institutions that were abusing people. Yeah. And so when the church is doing that, churches are institutions, and I think it's it's a natural thing for a thing that's become an institution yeah. uh, to look out for itself. Like it has a gravity. And it just wants to hold things to itself and look out for itself first. And that's a natural thing yeah. in the structures that we create. That's why we still have like institutional racism, because those things persist and they want to like stay. They, yeah. don't, they don't want to die. Yeah. Um, and, and people don't consciously have to be thinking, like, we need to be racist. We need to keep this thing ordered. It's, just, it's that, that gravity, that inertia is going to keep going yeah. until we can dismantle it yeah. over time. And But that's through leveraging like all these, these things that... Would, that these guys that you on the screen would probably say, well, that's of the world, right? And I'm like, that's that's a tool that's in the world that God has put us in. We need to leverage it for the sake of yeah. bringing the kingdom into this world. So it is it is tricky, and it requires discernment. Because my concern is that the uh, oh the the ethic of the church not get hijacked 
It's yeah. a process, right? I get it. Um, I'm not saying we shouldn't. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think in, in the imagination of a lot of the Two Kingdoms folks, you know, my pastor friend who uh, posted on Facebook just yesterday or the day before, hey, we, um, we've got elections coming up. It's our responsibility to vote. Um, and I, I don't disagree with it. But that is a secondary strategy, um, not a primary one for people of the kingdom. Um, so I want to say yes. Well, I also want to say but. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Yeah. Like, would the ideal be that where this the church body, the church family in which this happens, um, would have the power, would have the leverage to have that you know, like restorative end? That would be the ideal. Yeah. We're currently in a situation where that's not necessarily the idea. Yeah. It's much easier for somebody that, especially is, they have now a track record of abusing a position of authority, yeah. and they can just get out of dodge. Right. So, yeah. So yeah. I would, I think, it, to try to imagine, like in the abuse case, yeah. um, if that happened within storyline, yeah. I would want to involve brothers and sisters in Christ mm-hmm. who are outside of this system and yet in Christ yeah. to be a part of this and to communicate very clearly like like in our world um, it's really hard to hide and stay off the radar anymore because we're so connected True. and even though our the non-denominational world is more autonomous I think there are wa- I mean there are ways in navigating reconciliation and rightness and demotion that um, it can still follow you even if um, it's not following you legally. Um, I'm not saying it shouldn't follow you legally, yeah. but I wonder if there are options that we just haven't imagined because our, our imagination is kind of, it's truncated to what can we do through the courts? What can we do through the criminal system? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, you get it when you say it's the difference between retributive and restorative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where the whole problem is, is that our criminal system is really not about restoration. It is about right. punishment right. Uh, for doing wrong. Yep. And okay, that that does some good things uh, in, in one sense, but it doesn't solve anything. Yeah. Yeah. But also reminds me of what a uh, and, and our dilemma here is based on what a friend of mine, a Christian priest, told me one time. So, you know, the church is the most evil thing in the world. It's also the most holy thing mm. because it's made up of people, and that's where all of this is struggle. Yeah. Because no matter how you do it, you're going to run into that risk. Yeah. That's right. Well, I'm just going to lie down with Okay. <laughs> Valerie. Let, we'll make this the last one because okay. I, I don't, I don't want to be here until one. Sorry. I just, uh, I, it's going to until three. So hey, good. Great. I, I heard permission. Just a note that. The ability that we have to have this conversation mm-hmm. and to even debate about these different ways comes from an extreme place of privilege. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about who you have three white guys, like, and it's it's easy for someone in a place of privilege to be like, you know what, I'm just not, I'm in a cool way from the world, I'm just not going to vote. Because mm-hmm. you actually, you have the ability to decide that it doesn't have to affect you. And I think whenever we think about people that are abused in either way, whether it's the poor being taken advantage of by the rich, whether it's somebody in a place of power sexually abusing someone that doesn't have power, all of those things, yeah, there's different avenues that you deal with justice there, but I think we always, always have to think about, like, our role as Christians is to protect the vulnerable and the abused. And since I am in a place of privilege, it is my duty to use that privilege to help other people. And that includes people that have been marginalized and abused. Yep. And that requires right, my relationship with God, my discernment, to help me know what, am I, what do I do in this situation. But if we, I think the problem is the church, right? Like as it gets power, as it becomes institutionalized, we break away from that discernment from God and we're stuck on our discernment with the power, right? And so so then instead of protecting the vulnerable, we're protecting the most powerful. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, and then just recognizing that we, 
we're in places where we can have that privilege and we can have that power. We have to be careful about what that does to us. We also have to recognize that, like, yeah, we can have this cool, like, thought exercise and think about it and everything, but, like, guess what? Like, there are people whose lives are actually affected by it in negative ways. Yep, yep. Absolutely. And you're exactly right. Beth Wise would say the same thing. She said the same thing to me so many times. That, yeah, yeah. yeah, that, that um, I, I think the question and, and, and where privilege comes in is in, in the option for engagement or not. Engagement or disengagement. Uh, uh, involvement or aloofness. Those are not the poles that I'm working with right now. I'm on this engaged in. I'm over here. We've got to do something, right? How do we do it? What is the best way to do it? What is the best way to find justice, to find reconciliation, to find protection? Um, and I, I'm, I'm just, what I'm poking at is um, God preserves the world from destruction through earthly authorities, but God does not redeem and renew and restore the world through those earthly authorities. So what, what implications does that have? For how we protect and defend folks who are vulnerable, um, uh, how do we how do we engage in ways that are consistent with our commitments within the kingdom of God? Um, I watched last night with Julie uh, after the fact the uh, the wedding between <laughs> Prince Harry and um, uh, Meghan Markle, who we followed for a long time through Suits. And uh, I was captivated by I was captivated by Windsor Castle. I was just the majesty of that place. I was captivated by the thought of walking over your dead ancestors and being married on top of them. Um, I was captivated by the fact that Meghan Markle is is half black, and we had a black chorus. Probably for the first time, singing Stand By Me in that building. Um, I was captivated by all the cool kids that were in that, that, um, that castle um, that had showed up to be a part of it. I was most captivated by um, the Reverend Michael Bruce Curry, the 27th Bishop of the Episcopal Church, an African-American man. I think he's American. Is he American? Yeah. Um, all the world's cool kids are in the house, and he takes them to church. Uh, he talks about this union of love between uh, Harry and Meghan, but he says, you know, it's bigger than that. And his refrain over and over again was, imagine a world where love is the way. Imagine a world where love is the way. And, and in his refrain, he is subverting the, the very means by which most of the folks who are elite in this room have become elite. Imagine what would be different if love was the way. And here's the deal. Governments, earthly authorities, they do not run on the logic of love, as we've said. Um, they do not have the spiritual resources to sustain the way of love. They never will. They, um, they, as long as they're outside of the kingdom and the power of God, they, they're not able to do it. That, that's a limitation, right? And so here he is. That, that's, the, that's the juxtaposition here. That's the, that's the tension. Imagine a world where love is the way. Uh, and God says that love is the way within the church. That is the, that is the politic that fuels who we are as a people. That's how God is saving and changing the world. It's an alternative power of self-giving love. We need a way of relating to the government and to the world um, that is engaged rather than disengaged. We need a prophetic stance that doesn't play according to the same rules, that calls out evil where we see it. We also need a way of relating to the government that doesn't all that doesn't hijack this alternative power of self-giving love. Yeah, um, it requires prophetic imagination, like Reverend Curry's. So, can I just riff real quick on because you're trying to get at like what do we do in the church? You know, in situations of being abused. Yeah. Um, so, like your idea, like bringing other brothers and sisters in Christ and doing this thing. Like, so you, there is a confrontation that must happen when somebody in a powerful position is abused somebody else. 
um, because love requires that confrontation. Uh, because that person of power has abused this power, I would say that setting of confrontation, they would have to have had it. Like they would have yeah. to give it up. Yeah. Um, and they would also, I mean, depending on the situation, the people involved, the person that have been abused, like they, they have to be part of this conversation. It can't just be a thing where it's dictated to them what they must do, right? Because so resto- restoration must be a two-way street. The person that was the abuser must be in a position to actually repent, yeah. to actually give up that position of power, um, to actually be at the mercy of the church. Um, but if what happens is they're not in a place to do that, like what else can you do? Like there must be a confrontation. This probably goes back to you know last week talking about excommunication. It's like, all right, well, we're protecting this abused person, right? This person that was not in power. You're not welcome here because you still want to keep your power and you don't want to repent. So you're not welcome here. But then that, that still leads to the same problem, right? Of, okay, well, they leave the church in Houston and they go to another church in Memphis and no one knows the difference. Like, I think there's got to be like a, hey, you let this person go because they they were not in fidelity with, like, so I, say something, right? Like, maybe not have the, the details to protect the people involved, but uh, but there's got to be some sense of, of we're also looking out for the other churches. That's right. Right, Absolutely, brothers and sisters everywhere. Absolutely, saying, this person is not giving up their power. This is someone that I would see Jesus saying, "You are a viper. You are a brood. You are part of the brood of snakes. Like you've got to stop if yeah. you want to be a part of this body." Right? Yeah. I appreciate your heart in imagining and thinking through um, how to do that, and that uh, uh, heaven forbid. I know that. that um, but I mean, at the same time, we do. We need imagination. Yeah. Um, for when that happens. Okay, I don't know the answers, guys. Thank you for discerning with me um, this morning. I need to make a judgment call. Okay, um, so here's what I'm going to do. We're going to skip our prayer time. We'll just do next steps after this because I can't leave this out. Um, Cause I, but I need to hard shift um, and do some exegesis with you because uh, I, I don't want to read this text, even though um, uh, it's a very minor part of Paul's argument. I don't want to read this text and not address verse nine. Okay, did you notice verse nine? Yeah. OK, um, because um, because our stance in the world our friendships, our relationships, our witness, our mission um, is very much on the line in this regard. Um, so I want to treat verse nine, um, particularly two words there. The NIV translates these two words as men who have sex with other men. And um, I want to address this because it's commonly used as a clobber passage by which LGBTQI folks are clobbered. But, you know, for their sin or whatever with this this sin list um, and LGBTQI is um, very much talked about. And we lots of us have friends who are LGBTQI. Uh, and if you just woke up, maybe you didn't know the church is widely perceived as being anti-gay. Um, so I can't not. Yeah, I, I can't not talk about it. I have to. I have to talk about it. Um, I want to start by saying I hope it's clear that this list of sins, like I said, is a very minor part of what Paul is doing. Um, And that's why it's not the main topic today. But it's not because this topic is not important. Um, It is. Richard Hayes, a Duke scholar, says to use this text, 1 Corinthians 6, primarily to condemn or clobber um, one of the other classes of sinners in Paul's vice list is a strange perversion of. Of Paul's message. And I, I agree with him. Um, before I dive in, I want to call us to the crux of things. I know for certain that many in our community have different opinions about sexuality, particularly about gay relationships. And I want to acknowledge as well that there are faithful, Jesus loving people who hold very different perspectives and that hold them as a result of their best understanding of Scripture. And that said, while we may differ about such things, we are unified in our commitment to the gospel of Jesus. 
that is our center. We can differ in the other things if we are centered in that. And because of that, it's not our culture to have a policy or a statement or a position. Our approach is to come around the gospel of Jesus and let his spirit lead us forward. And so I call all of us to love and civility and unity before anything else. And a word about the function of preaching in this community in particular. In some traditions, um, some churches, preaching kind of functions authoritatively, where what's being said at the front is implicitly or explicitly what you should believe. Um, It's the position of the leaders, and we are telling you what you should believe. That is not the way preaching functions in storyline. Preaching in storyline functions in a discernment mode where I as an individual reflect theologically. I'm a theologian. um, I'm a missionary and I submit to you, the people of God, my reflections for discernment. The buck does not stop with me. The buck stops with us because we are the people of God filled with the spirit of God. So I think that's a very important distinction. So so that you receive what I'm saying in a way that's not what I'm telling you. That's right. Okay. Um, I want to be honest, too, and say that I'm very much in process about this topic. I am not satisfied about uh, with a lot with all of the mainstream Christian uh, theological reflections on sexuality. Neither am I satisfied with all the theological uh, reflections for those who um, would uh, have a what they would call an affirming kind of uh, position. At the same time, I could be wrong, and I'm happy to talk more with you about it if you're interested. Without further ado, <laughs> Lord have mercy. That's right. <laughs> the two words are Malakoy and arson koitai. Um, and here, here is what the industry-leading lexic, uh, lexicon that's used by scholars of all stripes, uh, affectionately referred to in the scholarly world as BDAG, Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich, all of the white dudes who put it together. Gosh, I cannot stop seeing privilege today, right? Um, but here, here's what the lexicon says. And but, uh, withhold your judgment because uh, it may be different than what you expect. Um, so this is what BDAG says. Malakoy literally means soft, but it's a term that's often used for younger men who were the passive partners in a sexual relationship with older men who either paid them for it or they used their power and influence to take advantage of them and to get sexual favors from them. Because similar to Me Too and abuse, the dynamics of power are real when it comes to sexuality. Um, it is um, translated in the NRSV as male prostitute. And it was in the NIV for a long time. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, so that's Malakoy. Arsen Koitai is never used on record before Paul. Um, Paul's the first one. Maybe Paul makes this word up. Uh, maybe he creates this compound word from the Greek translation of a, a text in Leviticus that has to do with same-sex activity. We don't know. Like, it's kind of, it's, it's speculative. And it's tricky when you're talking about a word. The less context you have, the more you can just upload whatever you want into that word. Okay? So, I say that. Um, the compound word is arson for male. And koitai for bed. In the context of verse 9, next to this word, malakoi, um, it refers to the dominant sexual partner in a relationship, the pederast, the complement to malakoi, the, the guy in power who's forcing that young passive partner to do what he wants, either through money or through the inherent power that he has. Um, the NRSV translates this word as sodomites. For that reason, recalling the story of Sodom in Genesis 19, where men from Sodom threatened to gang rape two angels as an act of domination and superiority. Okay, it's not because they were attracted to them and wanted a long term relationship. It's because they wanted to conquer them and show their power over them. 
I find it very interesting that the the translation before 2011 of the NIV um, translates these words, male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. One author making a joke says, Paul says homosexual offenders are wrong. So stop offending homosexuals. (laughs) I think that's probably a good point, regardless of what uh, the text is saying. But the the NIV changes the translation in 2011 to read more generally a man who has sex with a man. That is an interpretive decision. All translations are interpretive decisions. Okay, Um, but the timing of this translation is really striking to me. The NIV uh, translation team, they're tipping their hat to a particular way of viewing this conversation. Um, But in generalizing these words, NIV translators miss the specificity with which Paul is using these words. According to BDAG, he's talking about young men who prostituted themselves and the older men who had these young men sexually through the force of their wealth or power. This practice um, was not uncommon in Greco-Roman times. But a committed gay relationship between consenting partners does not seem to be in Paul's field of vision in this text. It's hard to say what he would say about that kind of relationship based on this text alone. All that to say, we should be slow. Nay, we should not clobber folks with this text who are living in committed monogamous gay relationship because this text isn't talking about them. It's referring to prostitution and sexual coercion. Again, this is by no means an exhaustive treatment of what the Bible says about same-sex relationships. There are six other passages to consider. And beyond that, there are theological trajectories and conversations to have more broadly about how we, how we view sexuality. This is a tree in the forest. Okay? But I, I do want to address this because it's relevant to us because people we love and care about have been clobbered by verses like this. Um, but a more exhaustive treatment is for another time. Again, I submit this to you and would love to talk further so that we can learn and grow together. Hear the good news, church. The Lord Jesus reigns over all creation And over the church, and he invites us into a new way of life, a way of reconciliation and peace and self-giving love, a way that the world doesn't have the spiritual resources to sustain without God. And for those of us who seek to exit the world of darkness and enter the kingdom of light, Jesus washes us. He justifies us. He makes us holy by his spirit so that we can be a prophetic witness in the world for justice and love. And everybody said, Amen.